You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 68. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another installment of The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can find more of my work at metamorecity.com and chrislester.org. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and share my adventures as I ramp up my writing career to professional output levels. More about that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you the first half of Chapter 20 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. If you're new to this show, you'll want to go back to Episode 24 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Power has a name in the criminal underworld of Metamore City, and that name is Malcolm Ardvalos. Cultured, intelligent, centuries-old, and ruthless, Malcolm serves as the prince of Talia's vampire crime syndicate within the city. Under Malcolm's leadership, the vampires have unified many of the city's warring gangs and exerted top-down control over drugs, gambling, unlicensed prostitution, and black market smuggling. Like all vampires, Malcolm is instinctively drawn to create order in his surroundings, and in Metamore's criminal underworld, he has done this remarkably well. Until recently, anyway. For the last several months, Malcolm has seen his organization fraying at the edges. A new supplier of illegal drugs flooded the market, shredding profits for him and his dealers. Automatic weapons seem to be turning up everywhere, especially in the hands of gangs who are unaffiliated with his organization. Plans are sabotaged, warehouses full of illicit goods mysteriously catch fire, and black market customers turn elsewhere for their wares. As the violence on the street flared out of control, Malcolm and his top officers searched desperately for an explanation. Who was behind this attack? Who was the unseen mastermind besieging his empire on all sides? All their investigations led to the same alias, the White Widow. But who or what this might be is a complete mystery to Malcolm. In the midst of this turmoil, Malcolm has sought new resources to shore up his position. One of the most promising prospects is the Telvari Rift Zone. This magical land lies half a world away from Metamore and Malcolm's domain, but the Empire of Metamore has placed it in the care of one of their own noble families, House Kapler. With access to extraordinary plant and animal life found nowhere else on the planet, Baron Kapler has built Kapler Pharmaceutical into a powerhouse of biomedical research. Fortunes are being made every year from Kapler's discoveries, and Malcolm wants a piece of that action for himself. Recently, Malcolm heard that a group of young nobles had traveled to Telvar's Inner Rift Zone, a military-restricted area where the mana levels are dangerously high. The six people in the party were all transformed by the Rift's power, and two of them have actually died from it, their bodies consumed from the inside by something unseen and powerful. Whatever it is, it represents a kind of power that Metamore hasn't seen before, and for Malcolm, perhaps a weapon that he could employ against his unseen enemy. Now, with the aid of his enforcer, Fisher, Malcolm has succeeded in capturing one of these young nobles for further study, in the hope of learning what happened to them. 
and how he can use it to his advantage. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 20 Malcolm Ardvalos had never considered himself a man of science. He had seen centuries of progress each generation of men struggling to make sense of the world in which it found itself, each coming to some sort of assurance that they, at last, had discovered the true nature of reality, and each, in turn, being overthrown by the discoveries of some future generation, with broader perspectives and more sophisticated tools of inquiry. Each time the paradigms shifted, Malcolm considered it a mercy that the previous batch of great discoverers had already departed from the world. Otherwise, the new ideas would likely have been dismissed as heresy. The spirit of discovery ran strong in humanity, but it was not so strong as the egos of the acclaimed and accomplished. In the words of Mother Lilith, death makes all things new. The lesson Malcolm took from all this was that an immortal ought to hold himself apart from the realm of scientific investigation. At best, such work would consume endless years, with the truth remaining always out of reach. At worst, he might fall into the trap of believing the work accomplished, and thereby force his field of inquiry into intellectual stagnation. Still, as he looked at the strange creature suspended in the tank before him, he thought he understood the compulsion that drove the scientists to continue their long, futile quest. Confronted with a puzzle like this, it seemed impossible that anyone should not want to solve it. Fascinating. He reached out and placed a hand against the cool, curving glass. On the other side, Lady Sephira Hinlasos floated in a bath of hyperoxygenated coolant, her iridescent hair tendrils waving in the current from the filtration pumps. Her head hung listlessly, eyes closed and face partly obscured, but the ends of the hairs reached out in all directions, probing the sides and bottom of the tank like blind, questing fingers. They seemed to sense the presence of his hand, even through the glass, and wherever he touched they would peel away from the surface, leaving a void in the shimmering pattern. Is she aware of us? Malcolm directed the question at the doctor in charge, one of the few top neurologists in Metamore City who wasn't employed by the Psy Collective. He'd met Dr. Ezekwe ten or twenty years ago, at a benefit dinner for the Telvari diaspora, and had all but hired him on the spot. Ezekwe was not overly political. After the war, the surviving Telvari could not afford that luxury but he shared Malcolm's interest in seeing the rift taken out of the hands of the Metamore nobility. Azikwe gave a frustrated shrug. I am still trying to make sense of the data. The neural activity is intensive and complex, but she hasn't responded overtly to any stimulus. I believe I am seeing at least three distinct brainwave patterns superimposed on one another. Malcolm looked up sharply. Possession, then? It seems likely. 
I suppose it could be a neurological disorder brought on by a transformation, but I've only dealt with three cases of possession in my career, and this one has all the earmarks. The vampire prince turned back to the tank. The girl's face looked peaceful, despite the fact that her lungs were breathing hyperox instead of air. Nor was that the only unusual thing about her accommodations. Malcolm's people were going to considerable effort and expense just to keep her alive. Nutrient tubes fed a steady supply of glucose, salts, and amino acids directly into her bloodstream, while the cooling system slowed down her metabolism and kept her body from burning itself up with fever. A problem that was frighteningly literal for these rift survivors, if the autopsies were any indication. Whatever was inside her, it cost a phenomenal amount of life-aspected mana to nourish, and Lady Sephira's body was sparing no expense in providing it. We need to find out if these creatures are worth keeping, Malcolm murmured. We may be able to learn something from them, some clue to what the rift has become. He turned back to Ezekwe. Open the tank. Let's see if that gets her attention. The doctor looked at him in alarm. That will compromise the shielding, my lord. I'm aware of that. Malcolm gestured to the guards at the back of the room. One of them raised his rifle to a ready position, while the other unhooked a wand from her belt. Proceed, doctor. Azikwe went over to the computer controlling the tank and entered a series of instructions. There was a hiss of changing pressure as the seals released, and the lid of the tank slowly tilted open. Lady Sephira went rigid, sightless eyes snapped wide, and the hair tendrils shot up to the empty space that had opened above her. They grasped the edges of the tank and then went taut, lifting her up until her head broke the surface of the liquid. She coughed and gasped, fighting to clear the hyperox from her lungs. It won't drown you, Malcolm called up to her. The changed woman paused. She did not look at him, but he saw several tendrils of hair reach out tentatively in his direction. In point of fact... Malcolm said, you'll find the hyperox serves you better than air, given your current metabolism. But since you've just gone to the trouble of clearing your lungs, perhaps I could have a few words with you. The girl did nothing for a long moment. Then, slowly, she sank back into the tank, leaving only her head exposed. Fever, she murmured. We feel cold, but that's wrong. Illusion erroneous metabolic set point. We need to be colder. Indeed. Malcolm climbed a metal staircase to the platform that ran beside the top of the tank. He knelt at the edge and looked down at her. My associates are keeping you alive, Lady Sephra. They may be able to help you even further, if you can help us understand what happened to you. A tendril of hair snaked toward him, then twitched back again. So much darkness, Lady Sephira said, as if in disbelief. How can you bear it? Malcolm smiled humorlessly. Let us say I've come to terms with what I am. What you are? At this, curiosity seemed to get the best of the girl. The shimmering hair came forward again, and this time it touched the palm of Malcolm's outstretched hand. There was a sizzling snap, like static electricity, and a pulse of purple-white light as the girl's life-aspected mana met the death mana that filled Malcolm's undead flesh. Sephira gasped 
and a cascade of images washed through Malcolm's mind. Burning. His city was burning. Ash and smoke turned the sky black. The air reeked of brimstone, burning oil and plastics. Flames pockmarked the walls of the towers, angry orange-red wounds in the bodies of giants. The skyways screamed as the metal twisted and buckled under the strain, then collapsed into the darkness below. People ran, singly and in herds, blind, mindless, throwing themselves from the failing platforms like lemmings running off a cliff. Skimmers jumped the railings and raced for open sky, only to collide in midair or be struck down by falling debris. Thousands died in every second that Malcolm watched. He could see their spirits being torn from life, shimmering ghostly forms that rose through the devastation, still screaming in pain and terror. And in the midst of all that death, a dark presence brooded over the city, drawing the tortured spirits to itself. Malcolm and Lady Sephira recoiled from the touch in the same instant. The tips of Lady Sephira's hair had burned off, and Malcolm's palm had been seared black, like a stake left too long on a hot iron. The pain was only a dim and distant thing, compared to what he had just witnessed. The future, he whispered. There was no sense denying it. Metamore City was unmistakable for anywhere else, and he had seen her grow into her present form. This had never happened. Yet he had just seen it happen, seen it in horrifying detail. This was no illusion and no fever dream. He knew how to recognize both. This was real. Must it happen this way? His voice trembled in spite of himself. Have you seen a different path? We have seen other paths, Lady Sephira said. They are worse. Malcolm looked up at her, then clenched his fist. No, this is my city. It won't end like this. I won't allow it. Tell me how to stop this. The girl rose out of the tank again turning her sightless, opalescent eyes in his direction. You cannot stop it, fallen prince. Malcolm stared at her. A soft glow enveloped her naked form, the multicolored lights dancing like fairy fire through her hair. Her expression hardened into a look of cold certainty. She had no pupils to meet his gaze, but she seemed to be looking into him nonetheless. Yes, we know you now, the girl said. The vampire queen's favored son. Mighty, proud, glorious. And yet, your highness is a mighty lion beset by jackals. The widow spins a web beneath you. The children of the black crypt prepare the way for you. Do not weep for the death of the city, O oh prince. You shall not see it. The light faded then, and she began sinking back below the surface of the fluid. Wait! Malcolm reached toward her, then flinched back, unwilling to risk another contact. Who are these enemies that surround me? Who is the White Widow? In all his searching, all the futile interrogations and empty leads, no one had been able to tell him the identity behind that name— 
the mysterious figure who had sown chaos on his streets. If this seeress could reveal who was pulling those strings. But Lady Sephira gave no response, and her mouth opened wide to fill her lungs with hyperox once more. A moment later, she was as still and silent as the moment he first saw her. Malcolm climbed down from the tank, thoughts churning. If his stomach still worked like a human's, he surely would have been sick. He leaned on the edge of the computer console and tried to center himself. He spotted a thin coating of dust on one of the computer's view screens and had to restrain himself from cleaning it. If he indulged his obsessive-compulsive side now, he might not snap out of it for hours. "'My lord?' Dr. Ezekwe asked, hesitantly. Malcolm's voice came out ragged. "'Give her one hour. If she wakes up and she wishes to cooperate, fine. Find out what she knows about the White Widow.' "'Yes, my lord. But what of the rift?' The rift! Malcolm paused, closed his eyes, and lowered his voice again. Is of secondary importance now. Get what you can from her, but this takes priority. If what she showed me is a true vision of the future, we must have every scrap of information that might prevent it from happening. From this moment I want you to record everything she says and does. Understood, my lord, Azikwe said. And if she resists? Malcolm gritted his teeth. Let Fisher have her. Ezekwe swallowed, but nodded. Yes, sire. Four levels up from the laboratory, Malcolm's legs were still shaking as he climbed into the back of his light flyer. As the pilot took off and angled for home, Malcolm looked out at the glittering lights of the city towers. In his mind's eye, the lights seemed to flicker with the hellish fires of his vision. Death makes all things new. But that was cold comfort, he thought, for the ones who did the dying. And that's where we're going to stop for this week, folks. What more will Malcolm and his people learn from Sephi? Will it be enough to finally point them in the direction of the White Widow? And what's up with Morgan, Misty, and Julia? The mystery continues next week. Donna Tart said, The first duty of the novelist is to entertain. It is a moral duty. People who read your books are sick, sad, traveling, in the hospital waiting room while someone is dying. Books are written by the alone, for the alone. As I sit here at home, while my sweetie is off in the desert, that has never felt more true than now. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 7,546 words this week, over the course of 9.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 816 words per hour. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I've gone 88 days without breaking my chain. 
Looking back at the month of August, I wrote a total of 20,362 words, which puts it pretty solidly in the middle compared to other months since I started doing this podcast. I wrote on all 31 days last month, averaging 657 words per day, and I spent 30.5 hours writing. Compared to July, my output was nearly the same. My word count decreased by 1%, and my writing time decreased by 2%. This week I found my stride again on the lost and the least, working on it for five out of the seven days, and making excellent progress when I did so. I'm now in chapter 31, and the manuscript is over 104,000 words. I feel like I've successfully slogged my way out of that awkward middle third of the novel, and now things are accelerating. These are the times when writing is really fun. If you're in the Fans of Metamore City group, or you follow my author page on Facebook, then you might have heard about my interview this week with Scott Roche. Scott is a longtime friend of Metamore City. Back in the days of the Metamore City podcast, he was snippy, one of my editing elves, who helped me get the podcast out on time. Scott is also an author in his own right, and he has a new sci-fi romance coming out called Coming Home Again. I talked to Scott about the new book, and about the broader topic of writing outside your comfort zone. We also took live questions from the audience. If you missed it, you can find it on my YouTube channel, along with my other interviews. That's at youtube.com slash user slash cwlester. The link will be in the show notes. And now, the feedback. Alan B. writes, I'm just catching up with the podcast. I'm on episode 39. Question, when did Braddock turn Morgan? What podcast episode was it? This is a question that a lot of folks have had, Alan, and that's mostly because the stories of Metamore City were not written in chronological order. In episode one of the Metamore City podcast, Welcome to the City, Morgan was already a vampire, and had been for nearly two years. In Huntress, Morgan mentions that her sire is dead, and in House Call, Kate tells us that Braddock is the one who turned her. After that, we left Kate and Morgan's story, and didn't pick it up again until Things Unseen. In the meantime, we had Making the Cut, most of which takes place four or five years before Welcome to the City. At that point in the timeline, Morgan is still human, and Braddock is still around. So we've got a gap in the timeline, and the story of Morgan's transformation falls into that gap. My friend Don Phoenix is working on a novel that will tell Morgan's story. It's called Mirrors, and when it's ready, I look forward to bringing it to you. For now, though, the rough outline of events is all we know. Glenn Fitch writes, Hey Chris, big fan from Making the Cut. Recently found the reboot and loving Things Unseen. I remember hearing on one of the podcasts what program you use to write the stories and to move the scenes around. Now that I have pen and pencil to write it down, I can't find it. Can you post the program name? Thanks. Hi, Glenn. The program you're looking for is called Scrivener. I use it for my big, complicated novels that have a lot of plot threads going on. For short stories and novellas, I use either Google Docs or LibreOffice. You can buy Scrivener for a very reasonable price at literatureandlatte.com. I'll include a link in the show notes. 
A few weeks ago, I started asking you to leave reviews for the show on iTunes, and I'm happy to say that since then we've gotten some. HoopD25 writes, So I started listening to Chris about a year ago, and have continually searched him out and listened to everything I can find that he has done. He's a terrific voice actor, storyteller, and seems like a dude you would want to hang out with. Aww. Oh, and his books are great, too. Ha ha ha. If you want a fantastic listening experience, then you'd better subscribe to the podcast. If this doesn't make you want to, then climb out from underneath your rock or off your high horse and do it anyway. Unquote. Sunka Isna has this to say. You, sir, are a bane on my muse. Since I began listening to Making the Cut, I have been seized by a compulsion to return to writing, which wouldn't be a problem if I could just tear myself away from the show long enough to put pen to paper for any length of time. You have found a very delicate balance between the technical and the arcane that is, for lack of a better word, simply intoxicating. I haven't been this enthralled since listening to Outcast by Chris Vidston. I can hardly wait to get through the rest of the backlog and find out how the story ends. Unquote. Thank you both very much. Remember, folks, reviews are one of the biggest ways that people find the show. There's a lot more podcasts out there now than there used to be, and with big companies and radio stations putting out so much professional content, it's a lot harder for indie operations like this one to get noticed. So keep posting those ratings and reviews, and telling your friends about the show. Reviewing my books on Amazon is a big help, too. So if you've bought Urban Legends, Making the Cut, Things Unseen, or Divine Intervention, kindly take a couple minutes to let people know what you thought of it. Just a couple sentences and a five-star rating can work wonders. Thanks for helping to spread the word. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To support the show, leave me a review on iTunes or make a monthly pledge at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. That's all for this week. Tune in next time for more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.